My name is Jed Dorsheimer, and I will be your host for the Plugged In Podcast, brought to you by William Blair. Today I have with me Nate Higgins. Nate's a good friend and also somebody that has a background in science, but also practical experience in the real world. Nate's done a great job of providing videos to help people better understand what energy is, as well as how it describes the economy. Those can be found on his YouTube channel. We'll also discuss a few basic concepts that are actually quite important. How energy describes the economy much better than money. How we're also somewhat blind to the energy around us during this carbon pulse. And then we fail to understand the miracle, really, of this carbon pulse. And like all things that are a pulse, that it's a period in time or a moment in time. We'll also discuss Jevons' paradox. This is the idea that as energy efficiency increases, we'll use more of the product or more energy, in this case, of that more efficient service, uh, gaining more social utility, but never curbing the dependence. This is why, you know, solving energy issues need to be dual-sided, both on the efficiency as well as the generation. With no further ado, let me introduce Nate Agins. Hey, Nate. Thanks for joining me today. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to have you on the Plugged In podcast. You know, one of the things that I want to start with is I was just querying on Google and I found this pretty interesting that one of the top five questions, I think number one, although I'm not sure of that, is what is energy? And you talk a lot about energy blindness. So I thought maybe that's a good place to start in this discussion and sort of how do you think about energy? And then after that, let's jump into why you think we might be blind to what one of the most important questions is. Thanks, Jed. Uh, good to be here. What is energy? To be honest, we don't know. We don't know what energy is. It has many immutable properties. I think what's more helpful for your listeners to think about is what energy does and what mm -hmm. can what it can do for us. And so energy or available energy um, is the ability to do work. So that's a physics definition, is a human and some innovation and some technology with some amount of useful energy allows us to do something, to move something, to lift something, to transform something. And uh, one of the core tenets of my work is energy primacy, which is that in nature, energy is the currency of life. Animals were the first investors, really, because they had to invest some of their own uh, metabolic energy in order to pursue and acquire and chase a prey, which had a larger amount of energy payoff. So energy primacy in, in human systems is just like in nature, the available energy surplus available to individual humans, to societies, to cultures, enables what we're able to do. And the amount of energy that's needed to invent and manufacture and deliver and distribute and maintain and repair and run and fix and dispose of every single good and service in the global economy dictates the health and, and viability of a society. So to me, energy is the single most important 
variable in our global culture. We think about uh, politics and technology and money, and all of that is a pyramid that sits on top of an invisible energy surplus. And let's be clear, all of that sits on a much larger invisible column of, of ecosystem services and the oxygen, the water, and the biogeochemical processes of Earth. So <laughs> that's how I see energy. So that's a, it's a great place to start. Now, I came up with uh, the thesis that I built around energy and kind of tying that to the economy, largely something we share in common. I own a farm, and, and it was actually watching nature and just uh, wondering why a tree naturally drops a branch that's dead, and then kind of thinking deeply about uh, some of these things that I observe every day on our farm, and then wondering why humans aren't adhering to the same things that the rest of nature is kind of adhering to. And I think we, we share some of those things. So I'm curious, but that wasn't always the case. Right. If we go back to the French physiocrats and sort of classic, a simpler, a simpler society, there seemed to be a greater understanding, a greater respect, if you will, to the role of energy being central. And somewhere along that path, and I mean path in terms of evolution, we've somehow lost that. And you, I think, articulate this as your thesis on energy blindness. So could you maybe? unpack that a little bit and, and whether or not you agree and please feel free to disagree with with anything that I've laid out too. Yes, without realizing it, everyone listening to this program is alive during what we might call the carbon pulse where our culture, our global culture is drawing down the stored potential energy in carbon and hydrocarbons, coal, oil, natural gas. 10 million times faster than it was trickle charge by daily photosynthesis. But like a battery. Right, like a battery, yes. And we can get to that later. The energy properties are, are different. A lot of electricity generating structures create kinetic energy where the electrons have to be used right then. Whereas potential energy like that stored in a barrel of oil or in a natural gas reservoir uh, once it's stored, it can be there for a very long time and then a flick a switch and it can be burned. But back to your question, um, yes, for the longest time, 99.9% .9 of human history, our wealth came from the flows of the sun, the rain, the soil, and human and animate muscle labor, our cows or oxen and our, our work in the fields. Even today, 80% of the population in India is directly involved in food production. But then in the 18th century, and then more in the 19th and 20th century, we puzzled out how to vertically farm instead of horizontally farm, meaning we would drill under the ground and access this bank account of stored sunlight. And this happened so fast, and it boosted the productivity of our culture and our economic well-being so quickly that the economist got rid of land and land productivity, or the physiocrats and the early economists, uh, uh, Ricardo and, and others included, all of that got parsed into labor, and, or capital and labor. 
and some productivity function. So all of a sudden, energy wasn't an explanatory variable into our economic success other than its cost. But but consider this, and I know you know this, and any of your listeners can find this out on a quick Google search. One barrel of oil contains 5.7 million BTUs worth of energy potential. If you translate that into work potential, it's around 1,700 kilowatt hours. You or me working on our farms for a nine-hour day generate around 0.6 kilowatt hours worth of energy in one day. So this oil and coal and natural gas have the replacement potential of around 11 years worth of our labor per barrel. Now, we are more efficient at directing our muscle energy into tasks that we want done. So you have to handicap that down. And and my estimate is it breaks it down to around four and a half years worth of human labor per $70 barrel of oil. And incidentally, it doesn't matter if it's $20 or $200 a barrel of oil, the embodied energy in the oil is worth around four and a half years of my labor. Here's the punchline. We use 100 billion barrel of oil equivalents of coal, oil, and natural gas every year in the global economy. So that's effectively 500 billion human labor equivalents that are being added to the global labor force in addition to the 5 billion or so real humans doing physical work. Now, technology also plays a role in this, but basically we are being subsidized by this gargantuan one-time subsidy of highly dense, highly potent energy from Earth's past. And our cultural stories ignore the impact of this on our economic growth and worse they treat it as if it were interest as if it were ongoing when it's really the principal a bank account that we're drawing down and so all this together manifests in what i call energy blindness our culture just treats a thousand dollars worth of oil or coal or natural gas like a thousand dollars worth of mineral water or computers or glasses or bike helmets when what energy does for us is orders of magnitude more impactful to our well-being and our standard of living than those other things. Case in point, relative to 500 years ago, the human economy is a thousand times bigger than it was as measured by the number of people times the amount of consumption per person than in the year 1500. And this is not due solely to technology. It's due primarily to us unpacking the carbon pulse. So I want to come back to that word that you just mentioned, which is pulse, which by definition would suggest something being temporary. So as we draw down on this battery, and as you describe a carbon pulse, coming back to how you see, uh, you know, what is the solution? Is the solution renewables? I know that you and I have talked a lot about this in terms of saying, hey, solar is great, just not for this society. I don't know whether or not you, you know, you continue that's your current view or, you know, I'd like to step more into, okay, we know what the problem is or a bit, right? This energy blindness, the fact that it's temporary. What is, what is the solution? In your or or maybe there's several that we can kind of unpack. Well, first of all, 
the word solution implies that there's a problem. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think what we face is a predicament, which is manifold in integrated uh, issues that are complex. Um, we have, as a culture, consumed beyond our means for at least 50 years. And we're papering that over with, with financial guarantees and things like that. So it's not just when oil starts to decline that we'll have a little bit less of this uh, substance that's so powerful, it's effectively magic on human timescales. That's not the issue. The issue is that our society is predicated on growth and all of our institutions and expectations expect growth to continue. So once growth stops, there's this uh, wily Coyote cultural moment that we're going to have to deal with. I call it the great simplification. But there are lots of responses to this. We're going to, over time, have to go back to largely renewable energy. And I agree with what you said earlier, though I would use different words. Right. I think in in tandem with our declining oil, coal, and natural gas, we do have robust, mature, um, relatively affordable, I call it rebuildable uh, technology. Um, it's not renewable per se because the sun and the wind are renewable, but the solar photovoltaics and the wind turbines using neodymium magnets and all those things have to be rebuilt every 25 years. So they're really no re renewable than a pickup truck. So I call it, you know, rebuildable technology. Mm -hmm. But but in tandem with that, we can, in theory, build some relatively sustainable system that uses our precious fossil hydrocarbons paired with technology. But we can't just focus on the supply side, Jed, because our entire system is geared for growth. And if we continue to focus on growth, we'll eventually run into limits, whether it's oil or water or ecosystems or CO2 or other things. So the real issue is conservation and using less energy. One, use less, consume less. You know, after basic needs are met, most of the best experiences you and I have had in our lives are mostly free. They don't require a lot of money and, and energy. Number two is protect the, the ecosystems where you live, because we've also taken those for granted. And number three is live more as a, a holistic human being that that marries the the spiritual, the intellectual, the emotional, and the physical aspects of our world, and we're connected to everything. But that's a little esoteric advice for our financial podcast. I think we're going to need to continue to innovate, but we're going to need new governance, new prices, and new aspirations. I'm sure you're familiar with something called Jevons Paradox, which is one of the reasons that humans continue to innovate We've gotten one to one and a half percent more efficient in how we've used energy every year, which means that energy and GDP are 99% correlated, but we get more efficient in how we use the energy over time because we're clever and we make new inventions. But what ends up happening is we use that savings and funnel it back into a growth-based economy. So since 1990, we have increased our energy by 36%, we've become more energy efficient. 
but our energy consumption has increased 63%. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of the rebound effect or Jevons paradox. Mm -hmm. Now, that actually will work in reverse on the downslope, is after we stop growing, efficiency will be massively important because it will slow whatever decline there is. So, you know, in a in a 30 or 40 minute podcast, it's it's hard to lay out the grand synthesis. But for instance, if we had a tax not only on carbon, but on all non-renewable inputs to our economy, like copper or aluminum or lithium or fossil water aquifers, and we remove the tax on corporations and on humans. That would do at least two things simultaneously. One is it would send the right price signal to innovators that, oh, my God, this stuff is declining. I mean, if we, if the United States stopped drilling oil today, our oil production would drop 40% in the first year and another 25% in the second year. So we are having to run faster and faster just to maintain current production. And eventually, we're going to step off that treadmill and have uh, probably have to use less and a, a smaller scale than the 19 terawatt, which is 190 billion light bulbs turned on 24-7 powering the global economy. So if we were able to tax this and remove taxes on humans and corporations, we would innovate because we would have the right prices and we would conserve. So my cell phone here would maybe be $3,000 and it would be maybe made to be more recyclable uh, instead of a lot of the things that are once and done and get lost in the trash heap. And we would probably appreciate energy more than we do. That's another aspect of energy blindness is we're living in this period of energy abundance and we just take it for granted. Yesterday, I flew back from uh, North Carolina and the air conditioner didn't work on the plane. And people were just so upset and complaining. I was just sitting there thinking to myself, we are flying across the sky. This is the equivalent of 100,000 invisible horses pulling this jet from North Carolina to Minnesota. And we're just so upset that we don't have a little air conditioning. So I think energy gratitude plays into energy blindness as well. But as we think about efficiency, the system, let's just take the U.S., just because I know the numbers off the top of my head, but we're consuming or we're producing 97 quadrillion BTUs, uh, actually consuming 97 quadrillion BTUs in 2019, I think it was. But the the output of the actual work in the, the the energy or converted to power that we were using for work was only 37 quadrillion BTUs. So our system um, is it, thermally, because we've optimized around thermal production, was only one third efficient. And so maybe another way of looking at this is that, because Jevon's paradox and, and the rebound effect says that while we'll never get the savings that we hope to achieve, we will get our social utility will increase as a function of greater use. Now, we can certainly debate whether or not taking more selfies is, is actually getting greater social utility or that there's a rebound effect associated with a peak and decline associated with that. 
But if we just take the basis for this, we seem to be optimized around a rather inefficient system. So what are your thoughts in terms of how efficiency will play in increasing the system efficiency? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, at the core of what you're talking about is, is a, a vast majority of oil uh, via gasoline is wasted as, as heat when we ride in a single passenger car and uh, coal and natural gas producing electricity are nowhere near as efficient as, as solar uh, electrons directed to an engine. But more broadly, energy and GDP are 99% linked. And evolutionarily, there's there's something called the maximum power principle, which is organisms and ecosystems self-organize to better degrade an energy resource. Mm -hmm. There's something also called Kleber's law, which is the, the energy use or the metabolism of all kinds of organisms from a mouse to a blue whale is its mass to the three-quarter size. And if you look at all of the global human economies, added together, our energy use is around that same size to the three-quarter power. So there, there's a, a biological scaling dynamic going on here. And one could argue from an evolutionary biology uh, vantage that waste is evolutionary selected for. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a peacock doesn't need that flashy, huge tail that requires a lot more energy to make the display and makes it less likely to get away from a predator or fly. And yet the sexual selection chose for that. So I, I think you're right, but it first requires new governance, new cultural aspirations. I mean, right now, we as a global culture self-organize as families, as small businesses, as corporations, as nation states around profits. Profits are tightly linked to energy, which is tightly linked 80 some percent to fossil energy. And so right now we've outsourced the decision-making of our culture, not to billionaires and uh, political people, but to the market. And the market is way more powerful than anything else in the world right now. When we had the great financial crisis and COVID, it was like bazooka to try to support the market because a market failure would have been a disaster. So, you know, some of the things that we talk about in the world that we care about, like what is the carbon footprint of quantitative easing? No one ever asked that question. So I, I think technology and innovation must continue. You know, there's a difference between a technology being viable and cool and being scalable and sustainable. I know you're an electric car uh, aficionado and, and analyst, but, you know, only a fraction of human history did we have uh, vehicles and cars. And I, I do think electric cars are are um, use less carbon than internal combustion engines. But I don't think they're an answer to this global human predicament that that we face. Maybe at the margin, they're they're helpful. But what's afoot now is we're consuming beyond our means. We're shoveling uh, uh, fuel into a runaway train without a plan, which is why I'm I'm so thrilled that 
you on, on Wall Street are aware of and articulating biophysical economics. When I got my master's at University of Chicago, the word energy was never mentioned in the two years I was there. So I think Wall Street especially treats energy uh, as a flow and not a stock. And we've we've made decisions and discounted cash flows and net present value calculations, assuming that our energy and resource picture will always be the way it was the last 50 years. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I tried to ask for uh, a refund for my undergrad <laughs> in economics, but they said that my my college said no. Uh, anyways, I um I think we're about out of time. You've left so many things that I need to have you come back. Uh, Be happy to come back, Chad. Yeah, I'd love to have you back. Anything that you want to leave the audience with at this point in time? We're live at a very special, amazing, and perilous time. And everyone listening to this is wearing three hats. One is you're an investor. Uh, you work at a company. You're trying to maximize shareholder value or profits or innovate. Two is you are part of a family and a community and you want to do what's right for your family and your little corner of the world. And three is you're a human, you're a citizen of the world that that hopefully wants to participate in something for the greater good. And right now, it's difficult for the signals that we receive, the, the incentives for those three hats to align. So I just, I encourage people to become more literate in ecology and energy issues and how the system fits together and invite you to, to play a role in our collective future. This has been great. Thanks, Nate. You're welcome, Jeff. For more, head to williamblair.com thinking, uh, where you can browse our library of white papers, market updates, webinars, and all these other resources designed to provide actionable intelligence for emerging opportunities. If you like what you heard, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Copyright 2023, William Blair and Company, LLC. William Blair and Ardox are registered trademarks of William Blair and Company, LLC. As used on this podcast, William Blair refers to William Blair and Company, LLC, William Blair Investment Management, LLC, and affiliates. For more information about William Blair, go to www.williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of an investor's objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change over time as market and other factors evolve.